to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Intimate, liminal, experiential. Jacob David Sudol uses new technologies to create intimate compositions that explore enigmatic phenomena, the inner nature of how we perceive sound, as well as novel connections between Eastern and Western musical cultures. His music has been performed nearly 200 times by many prestigious ensembles and performers across the USA, as well as in Taiwan, Canada, Mexico, China, Japan, Korea, England, the Netherlands, Italy, Germany, Thailand, Singapore, and Cambodia. In addition, Dr. Sudol recently completed a chapter on his music for the upcoming Oxford University Press Handbook of Spectral Music. <laughs> So. All right, man. Well, uh, good to see you. It's been a long time. Hopefully, Likewise, you know. Hopefully, we'll uh, we'll catch each other at some festivals coming up here. Uh, yeah, definitely. See, at, unless we have like the 18th wave of COVID again, or or whatever we're on at this point. But I'm hoping the, I'm hoping the variants just get like less infect, less you know dangerous. Right. Right. Regardless of how infectious they are. <laughs> yeah. Point. So maybe maybe we like the festival season can kind of come back. But anyway, good to see you. And we're going to talk likewise, about likewise. Uh, we're going to talk about two of your pieces tonight. And I wanted to start off with your piece "Stone Bells and Long Reeds Spinning in the Wind" mm-hmm. uh, for piano. So. Uh, kind of tell me the story of this piece. Like, like how, how did it come about? Because I read, I read the notes. There really, there is a very interesting story about this. Yeah, surely. Um, there's a couple of things. There's two ways I can sort of approach explaining this piece. Um, the first of which is the fact that, um, I think it was 2000 and it was spring of 2015. I was going to Thailand. Um, a good friend of mine, Koji Nakano, who used to teach at Barapa University in, um, Thailand, which is about an hour south of uh, Bangkok. I remember um, Koji. I met him. You met you met you met Koji. Yeah, in yeah. Taiwan. Yeah. Oh yeah yeah yeah. You were on. It was he, so, was, te- he, was, he was probably teaching there at the same time you came for the concert, right? I think I think it was Walkmat. Oh no 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 yeah yeah Walkmat yeah Walkmat yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. he was uh-huh. also invited yeah exactly yeah yeah Koji's he's this one of Chinnery's former students like with Chinnery Wong was my was my mentor during my doctorate and um. You know, we often refer to like the extended Chinnery family. You know, mm-hmm. people who stay with Chinnery, people who know Chinnery, people who work with Chinnery. It's it's you know it's it's sort of a big family. Right. Um. So we we I, he had invited myself and um Jen Hui to go to Thailand for a series of projects he used to do, which was having Western composers and East Asian composers collaborate with uh, traditional Thai musicians to mm-hmm. write pieces for traditional Thai instruments. Uh, which is, you know, rather difficult because they don't read music. Everything is completely orally in their traditions, in their classical traditions. So there's no notated tradition. It's all done by like ear. Um, so I was planning to go there for that. But Chinnery, um had told me that he was planning to actually right after he went to Thailand to go to Cambodia because um, there were a number of sounds he wanted to record in Cambodia for at that point, probably about 50 years, since the mid-60s, mm. he'd been wanting to record multiple sounds, one of which, uh, both of which are referenced in the title of the piece, one of which was these stone bells, which had been in the um, Cambodian Museum of Art, in the Cambodian National Museum, I, don't quote me on this, Cambodian National Museum of Art. Um, since it opened, we, we actually, went, we, we, he had prepared a letter to meet with the director of the museum, 
because he wanted to record these, you know, this was so, and we didn't know if he would agree to this or not. Right. I brought all this equipment, you know, and um, he'd been dreaming of this for like decades and decades. Um, and so he, that was one project he wanted to record and bring me to help him with. And the other one was to record these sort of singing kites, these Cambodian singing kites, the klang ek, as they're called, which are these reeds that they fly on these kites. They're really long. They're about like two and a half meters and they spin and they create these sort of melodies. And he had been dreaming of recording these since like the late sixties. And um, he had was in contact with the director of the national Cambodian kite museum, which is mm-hmm. a crazy thing to think that it actually exists. Right. A national, a national kite museum. <laughs> um, and also was in touch with the Dean of uh, the Royal university of fine arts in Cambodia, um, Yoshtandra, who now works for the government there um, about like organizing a session where they would, provide a sort a sort of exhibition where they would fly multiple kites in a rice field um, outside of Phnom Penh and um, we to give us the chance to record them. So I went here with I went to Cambodia with Chinnery. Um, stayed in his one of his, one of his sister he has two his multiple sisters. One still lives in Cambodia. We stayed in his in her house in Phnom Penh. It's a very strange experience. Um, and um, we met with the director of the museum of the National Museum of Arts in Cambodia. And he totally agreed. He's like, you, whatever you want to record, <laughs> you, wow. can, you, you have my access, you know, any instrument you want, you can record. You have my permission. Um, so the particular things we wanted to record were these gigantic, long metal stoned idiophones, um, which were not even on display anymore at the point. They, they were just in, they were in, um, storage at the time um even like showed us all these bells that were on display in museums say hey we can take these and to back and you can record them if i was the chairman was like no we want to record these bells uh-huh. these specific bells i've been captivated by these forever um so we went to the storage and um the um the curator for for the museum this is this french man who lived in cambodia who'd been living in cambodia for multiple years he's like yeah sure i know where they are you, you can record these so he like set them up um, apparently somebody else had, I think somebody else had recorded them or some other instruments beforehand, but he was just like, it's totally fine. You can record them. You can do it. Mm-hmm. You can do whatever you want with these. We don't have any idea what they are. We found them in the jungle. Wow. They were found in the jungle like over a hundred plus years ago. Um, and actually we've been finding more recently. So, um, okay. so they put me in a room, uh, right beside the office of, of the curator. And I set up a, um, a couple microphones in AKG, and I think a Neumann um, K184. And we we got a whole... It, actually, it's interesting because the museum is right next door to the Royal University of Fine Arts. They're, they're right by uh-huh. each other. So they brought a whole bunch of mallets, traditional mallets for playing instruments like the Ronnie Eck and others. Uh, traditional um, Cambodian percussion instruments. Uh-huh. And they gave me just all these percussion instruments as well as a bow. And I basically just sat in this closed room without air conditioning for an hour <laughs> <laughs> recording these like in Cambodia. In, was it the summer? It's always summer. Right, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was, it was like, it was like April or I don't know, March, April. <laughs> and it was like, I mean, I, I got heat stroke in the process of doing these mm. recording sessions. And if you listen to the recordings, they're, they're interspersed with the sounds of chickens, like roosters. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so like, they're cause you know, you got to time just, it. You got to you yeah, gotta yeah, figure exactly, out, yeah, yeah. What what's the algorithm of the rooster crowing? You gotta time <laughs> yeah, it yeah, and they, get in there when it's when it's time. 
Yeah, I mean, I close. I mean, I microphone. I I I recorded them really, really close because yeah. it was just like you know, I knew that the environment was not optimal. There's no air conditioning, and there was a lot of street noise because it's downtown Phnom Penh. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, the roosters were just you know, now, were just making. Now I have a question. So yeah. Chinnery has been uh, dreaming about recording these things. Had had they ever heard them? No. No. no so he had no idea what they sounded like so all. oh my god that's that's a like you've been dreaming about this for 50 years what if they suck like what <laughs> yeah, if exactly, what exactly. if they don't sound like anything what if it's just donk you know like yeah no i mean i mean the thing that we discovered is they only had two of them that had been there forever mm-hmm. um and one of them was in perfect condition and the other one had been broken yeah and so there were actually were these metal rods they had like somebody had fixed it like like 70, 80 years ago, somebody had like decided, oh, well, let's just fix the appearance of it. But yeah, but that's, then it's not going to sound like anything. Yeah, yeah exactly. It doesn't yeah. sound the same as what it was. So, um, and there are a whole bunch of others. And the thing is also the fact, um, you know, Confucius talks about this. If you, if you, if you read Confucius, Confucius talks about the fact that like he reached, there are multiple instances in Confucius's writing where he talks about like sort of enlightenments or moments of like, you know, finding purpose in life. And one of them was listening to this, was listening to a stone bell orchestra, mm. you know, in, in Chinese music, there is historically this idiophone orchestra, these instruments made of stone. The problem is it's, they're no longer extant. They don't exist anymore. Yeah. They're, they're, they're gone. They're lost to history. Um, there are some things that are related in Korea. Um, and there are some things, I think, I think in, in Vietnam or Thailand, there are some things which are, maybe related we just don't entirely know yeah so like you know the fact that these things existed in cambodia i mean it was it was it was intriguing to me because it's like it seems as though you know it's part of the the, the broader uh Zhonghua Ren, Wenhua, um sorry uh, when <laughs> the, the the greater you know Hua Ren, the greater you know Chinese, i understood you diaspora, <laughs> yeah the greater dis- diaspora sorry i've been studying chinese <laughs> you know it, you know it's it's yeah. the, the greater the greater you know chinese diaspora you know culture which is you know what most of east and southeast asia is it relates right. to, to the chinese culture in ancient chinese culture so it to me it was interesting because it related to something which you know i'm very close to you know being married to a taiwanese i'm mean, having spent significant time in east asia so yeah, it was very interesting to me to like study these and, and record these instruments to try to understand what were these lost sounds. Um, the other sounds were these kites, and what I did for the for, to record the kites, the, I did twofold. Well, I did threefold things. One of which is I I placed um, <laughs> I placed like uh, a little uh, lavier microphone on the kite itself. Um, when I was in Cambodia, I was there with um, Chenry's wife Susan Ung, who's a terrific violist. As well, and she often plays with a lavier microphone for a uh-huh. piece that Chenry has for um, viola and singing soprano, so the she can so the vocalizations can be properly amplified and you can hear the sort of intimacy of the sound. And um, so I put that on the on the kite itself, and then I had a um, shotgun mic <laughs> as uh-huh. well. Just, it sucked. Uh, <laughs> so so I recorded oh. the sound of the I recorded the sound of the kites, you know, flying from yeah. the kite's perspective, you know, via a wireless microphone. As well as you know, the use of shotgun mic, um, and then later the, the director of the uh, National Kite Museum was like, "We can actually perform these kite. We can actually perform the ronic." But he he said, "You know, we can actually we, we can put a string to these and spin them around our heads." Uh-huh. 
And so we actually, after we spent about um, three hours in a rice field outside Phnom Penh, which is crazy because you could actually see like the high rises, the skyscrapers of downtown Phnom Penh from like rural Cambodia. It's really weird, really surreal. Uh-huh. Um, we spent about, and got heat stroke in the process, of course. That's what you always, in time in Cambodia, you get heat stroke. Um, we spent about half an hour in a, um, in a studio outside of the National Circus, um, sort of directing him how to perform the Ronnie Eck yeah. as he spun it around his head, you know, and so, and recorded that with like, you know, a, um, with an XY setup uh-huh. of cardio, of cardioid microphones. So those, those were the original source materials for that piece. So, um, I had those materials and I was like, well, um, I had them for quite some time because Jerry wanted them and, and he used them in a few sources. His daughter, Kalyan Ung has done a piece recently, a theater piece. She, she's, I think she teaches theater at Cal Arts right now. She did a degree in vocal performance as well as theater. Um, she's has a lot of experience doing like Shakespeare and other sorts uh-huh. of work. And she has a piece that she's done, which is called Letters from Home, which is all about uh, Chen Ryung's whole process of helping his family and various other individuals, you know, escape the genocide in Cambodia. Uh-huh. Um, so they've used part of the sound design for that has actually been using some of the recordings that I did in Cambodia. Uh-huh. Um, but in terms of this piece, um, the, the circumstance where I wrote the piece initially was for um, a concert by uh, the pianist Sarah Cahill. Uh, she was doing a concert which was, um, he was in memoriam of Lou Harrison, uh-huh. I think for his 80th or 90th, I don't remember the circumstances exactly, 80th or 90th birthday. So she was playing a number of his pieces and pieces related to him. And she was asking myself and uh, my colleague, uh, Orlando Garcia, to write pieces that were would have some sort of relation to this to fit in the program. And I automatically thought, you know, I have these materials from from my from that I've recorded from Chenry Ung. And um, you know, I, I've done a lot of over the last few years, I mean, a lot of my music is very much about analyzing sound and using sound as the, the original source material itself. And um I've started, I think, in around the time I wrote this piece, I think maybe a little bit before I wrote this piece, I was starting to actually more conscientiously use the the analyses, the spectral analyses of the material itself as the real entire source material. Uh-huh. And part of what was interesting to me was the idea of the absence, the sort of the negative space from like taking these analyses of these, these various frequencies, turning them into pitches, taking these dynamics, and then giving them performers. And then like the awareness that like, this thing, this sort of like neither timbre or harmony thing that they perform is not quite the thing it represents, but maybe you can kind of sense it as a result. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, that was, there was another, a few other pieces I've written like this, um, particularly Thread's Unraveling, uh, uh, Threads of Wind um, and Unraveling, which are based upon some Tibetan bowls I've used in at least 20 pieces of um, have really t- made, taken advantage of really literally using the dynamics and everything, just completely using analyses as direct material. So the sort of space between the analysis and the actual sound itself is something where you can sort of sense almost palpably something that's missing. Um, right. So I decided when I was writing this piece, uh, since it's something Chinnery had been missing, you know, and absent from for so much of his life, you know, and desiring that this would be a, a useful approach to to dealing with these sonic materials. 
So I literally, um, it's almost didactic. The piece exists in two parts, as it said. It's stone bells, which yeah. is the, the first part is really just the analyses of the instruments with the exact dynamics of the frequencies. Um, and then the second part is the uh, klangek, the spinning kites. I literally, um, I transcribed them and, and provide, and of course you got to quantize its piano um, and quantize them. Um, and basically just did that to create the material. And then there's a coda of, of the coat of the stone bells. So with, with the stone bells one in particular, are Ooh. you, you know, from your analysis, are you kind of getting a fixed register pitch field? Like this is, this is what I have. Yeah. Um, and then for the, uh, for the spinning kites, I mean, were you a little bit more free with the pitch material? Yeah, a, a little bit, a little yeah. bit. I mean, the the, the, the stone bells, I think I navigate, I forget exactly what I did because I always forget what I did. Um, I navigate between, I think, three or four analyses of mm. just like, you know, 100 millisecond analyses where it's the, the specific frequencies and the exact pitches or the exact frequencies according, the exact pitches according to the frequencies as and the exact dynamics which correspond to each and everything is exactly as I got it from the analysis. There is no, there is no um, creative input beyond that. I mean, besides the order in which they occur, um, yeah, it's, it's all straight from the analysis. What are you? Um, for the, what program are you using to to like do this to do the? Analysis? Oh, I, I use Open Music, so okay. I, I do I do the analysis in either AudioSculpt or Spear um, mm-hmm. with an SDIF uh, file format is. Um, which is, I think UC Berkeley established that file format. And then it's, yeah, it's using the uh, RepMuse catalog, the RepMuse library inside of Open Music from Eurocam. Um, yeah, I've used I've used Spear for a long time. You know what? I, on the, I don't know if Spear is going to work anymore. Like, isn't, does it not work on 64 bit? I think I, I haven't tried using I it. Think I, I, every time I've tried to open it on the, the, um, this computer, which is Big Sur, it like, is oh, there for a bit so and crashes and I'm like, no. So I have, a, I have an old computer yeah. I'm specifically keeping it around for spear. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I haven't updated to big Sur yet. I'm still on Catalina, which was a big, you know, thing going to 64 yeah. bit from all the 32 bit programs. Yeah. I still have my old computer. I still have on my old computers just in case, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I have a lot of old Eurocam software. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, so I, I, I have various ways of doing it too. I can do it in Max too if I need to. So okay, yeah. I mean, yeah. you recently you recently completed a chapter for an upcoming book on spectralism. I mean, can mm-hmm. you kind of give it? And it's about your uh, the chapter is about your music. So can you kind of yeah. give us a preview? What what kinds of things are you talking about? What uh, what pieces are you talking? Like, does this piece factor into the chapter? Or you know, it's it's funny if if you ever get a contract to write for a publisher. I've been told this by, I was initially told this, I think like nine or 10 years ago by Scott Wilson, who teaches at the University of Birmingham in England. Don't work with any of the major publishers. Because, <laughs> like he was telling me this after writing something for um, writing, work collaborating on the um, Super Collider book, which came out on, on MIT Press. You know, um, he said like the review process and the editorial process was so long by the time the book became published like 50% of the book was like, you know, technologically obsolete. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I wrote this, I wrote the chapter for, for all my, I wrote the chapter for, um, uh, this is, it's coming out on Oxford university press. I wrote the chapter for the, the, um, 
I think it's called the handbook of spectral and post-spectral music. It's changed some over the course of the years since I've been contracted to write for it. I I wrote the chapter initially submitted it in night in 2016. Mm -hmm. So, um, (laughs) I think I wrote this piece in 2018, 18, 18. Yeah. 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 So, 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 yeah. So, so needless to say, um, (laughs) My my practice has changed a fair amount since I wrote that chapter. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I was just I was, a lot of a lot of the material. The most recent piece which I discussed in that chapter, I believe, is two thousand and twelve or two thousand thirteen. Um, so yeah, it's it. I've changed my approach significantly since I wrote that. So it's it's kind of funny to the book isn't the chapter and the book are still not out and. Uh, <laughs> and you've already moved and, away from it. And, I, and I've moved on so far from what I was writing back then. I mean, it's nice to have the document. It's nice to know that there'll be documentation, which is published and written. Sure. Based upon what I was doing in, you know, the mid 2000s, like the early right. 2010s. But beyond that, yeah, no, things have, I, I've, I've, I've changed a lot of what I've done. And I've, and I've sort of moved on a lot throughout over the years because, you know, spectral music, I, I, I love spectral techniques and I love, the idea or in post-spectral music and the idea of using sound as a material. But um, I think so much of that music is just so boxed in and so cliched and, and so just not original. Um, I feel that there, there, there is a, uh, uh, I'm, be, I'm being, um, I mean, I know I'm being polemical here, <laughs> but it's okay. uh, there, 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 there's a tendency for a lot of that music, I think, to sort of, it, it falls into similar trappings that a lot of the post-serial music fell into, where it's this sort of school, you know, rather than the individuality and, you know, the uniqueness of the composer's voice gets sacrificed for the aesthetics of the um, genre it, it or be- the, the it, approach. Yeah, it becomes a genre instead of just a tool. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. So I, it's, I, it's something I find problematic. So, um, yeah, so it's something I, I deal with very critically in my music. That's why what I was doing 10, 15, 20 years ago compared to what I'm doing now is vastly different. And mm-hmm. what I'll be doing in 10, 15 years surely will be much different than right, what I'm doing right. now. So, yeah. uh, this, this recording of uh, the piece, is this from one of your online concerts that you did in the last uh, year or so? Yeah, yeah, this was, we did this, I don't remember which concert we did it in. Um, there, were, It's all a blur. Right. Um, yeah, but this this was one of the, yeah, this was one of the online concerts we did, yeah, which we, we Yeah, you had were a, doing we, those in like, w- did you already start that in like May 2020 or or was that already into the I think I think we started in May, yeah, because okay. it was, as soon as, the, as soon as the pandemic started and as soon as everything closed down, the, the first purchase I made on Amazon as soon as everything locked down was a 25-foot Ethernet cable. Yeah. Uh, the, the reason being we have Google Fiber in our building. I was like, we're going to do online concerts. We're, yeah. we're going to figure out how to do this because like, it's going to last a long time. Mm. And I miss people and I miss making music. And, you know, um, this is going to be a way we can continue to make music. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, like, you know, those I, I came to a, a couple of those uh, mm. of those concerts. And it was it was definitely, you know in those in those early days in you know it seemed like you know the initial shock nothing was happening in march in april people were starting to kind of figure it out and then in may there was this like all of a sudden you had a bunch of people that had figured it out they were starting to do online concerts and it was like oh well 
oh my god this is it with with the way the world was at the time it provided a little glimmer of hope um, yeah i know it, it was it was nice because it was like it was hard you know there was it was hard to make connections to people you know, yeah. at that time it's, we didn't know what was going on and i mean um jen way and i had talked for a long time about like often wanting to make um apartment albums where we just like you know you know you know in pop music indie music there's the whole you know the mm-hmm. apartment recording you know? yeah it's like you make it in your bedroom you know it's like well why not you know we, we got a really nice piano we got a lot of really nice equipment uh we live in a you know high-end condo with like you know hurricane strength windows <laughs> so um, it's quiet you know, yeah you know so it's quiet so we can you know we can conceivably make pretty good recordings in here um so the you know, this lack of connection with people in terms of performances was something that, you know, I, I missed and, you know, I wanted to um, try to find a way to connect to again. And, you know, and it was, we could combine that with doing recordings of whatever we did afterwards. So, you know, the, yeah, yeah, the idea was really just like, you know, we did like every two weeks, I think yeah. for seven, for, for 14 weeks, every two weeks we did a concert and an album afterwards. And then we were so... <laughs> so <laughs> burned out yeah <laughs> oh my god i can imagine <laughs> it was oh my god it was so hard <laughs> well let's let's listen to it so we're gonna hear uh your wife jen hoi jen uh performing this piece which is called stone bells and long reeds spinning in the wind
Yeah, the, the one thing I didn't mention is the fact that, like, with the um, the the I was sorry, the, the the stone, the the um, the reed part, I kind of transcribed orally using my ears. Mm, okay. And and then the harmonization was largely based upon like, I analyzed like I think like fifty or sixty different sections of what just the individual timbre of the reed was, you know, uh, as it. And so I try to use that because it's really weird because it's like, it's not. It's not quite harmonic, and then the scales it plays like the, the, the like if you just analyze the melody, it's 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 really strange. It's really really strange. You know, it's like, and then translating super, that into piano must and, yeah, like, and then translating into the piano is like even harder. So yeah, yeah, so that was kind of like it was trying to reconcile the fact that like the timbre is as weird as it is. The timbre, you know, the the frequential content of of the notes is as weird as is, and then like you know how to tune this thing, which is not even anywhere close to equal temperament into something that a piano would play. Yeah. It was kind of, it was, you know, it was kind of a, a series of compromises. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your uh, piece for string quartet and electronics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is time and after um, I saw on the score, you wrote this in 2015, but the end date says 2021. So have you been kind of messing with it recently? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. This is, this is, um, this piece is very much kind of, um, it's a very long process. I've written two string quartets or in my life as a composer. Um, and each time, it, each com- each quartet I've written has taken me a very long time to write. I don't know why. Um, something about the genre. Um, the, the genesis of this piece started in 2011 uh, when my colleague, uh, the cellist Jason Calloway, who's this terrific new music um, cellist who studied with... Um, many terrific new music cellists. He's been in Lucerne many times with Boulez and just played all over the world doing new music with so many terrific composers and performers. It's really hard for me to even to list them all. Um, He, as soon as I got hired, he was like, you know, Hey, you and I need to start a duo where we do cello and electronic music. Like I've always loved the repertoire for cello and electronics, but um, you know, I don't want, I've never touched it because I've never been around somebody who can perform electronics with instruments you know and like now you're my colleague so let's let's do it let's, yeah let's let's, let's let's explore the rep so um i initially wrote a piece for him called vanish into the clouds um which was based upon um a chapter from the japanese novel tale of the genji which is famous because um there's it doesn't exist it only exists as a title. So the two theories are that it was initially written and then lost, or the other alternative is the fact that it was written as a title, but there was no content. It was just like left blank, you know, sort of as an expression of how difficult it was to deal with the fact that before Vanished into the Clouds and after the Vanished into the Clouds, the main character of the novel, Genji, is dead. And it's just like, the, the, the narrator cannot process the grief, cannot find language. So she leaves the, the chapter blank. Uh-huh. You know, it's a sort of, um, it's kind of like c- combining like 433 with, you know, a sort of poetic expression. Yeah. So um, obviously my piece isn't empty. There's actually notes in it. Um, but it was very much meant to focus on this sort of, concentrated on just very sort of subtle things, the things when you really pay attention to the music and the sound itself that come from the cello, sort of ephemeral, very, very fragile sounds. It was I was also very much interested in thinking about the idea of sort of um, uh, 
um, two things, one of which was sort of the idea of a musica porvera, sort of impoverished music, or also sort of just the general like wealth inequality in the world uh-huh. these days between like, you know, for instance, the global South, the global North, or, you know, all over America, you know, between urban uh, neighborhoods or racial disparities where you have these people who are super rich and these people who have almost nothing because they've exploited people with very little. Um, so the idea of making music where the music itself sometimes just has very little, it's just, you know, where you can sort of experience what it's like to have almost nothing as a material and then, you know, at times have have a lot. So that was one of the first pieces I, I wrote for a string instrument, bowed string instrument in electronics. Um, I later went on to write um, three other pieces as part of a cycle, um, which were all related to chapters of from Tale of the Genji. The other three pieces draw from the Uji chapters, which are the latter, um, I want to say one quarter of Tale of the Genji, which is extremely modern in its construction it's 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 essentially about like two cousins who are very much interested in three other female cousins it's Uh it but it's entirely cycle it's it's completely psychological drama it's all about the internal you know conflicts and the internal relationships it's you know it's very 20th century and very much like about like sort of the mental processes and emotion as emotion develops so um there's another three movements um a piece for cello and then two pieces for violin. Um, one of which I've actually rewritten to be premiered um, next year by Miranda Cookson. Um, so these were sort of like the genesis of it. This sort of exploration of like with very careful exploration with uh, violinists and cellists, cellist uh, primarily being Jason Calloway. Um, the violinists I worked with were um, Jennifer Choi, who's one of the most brilliant and terrific violinists I've ever heard as well mm-hmm. as Amari Kamura. Um, oh, right. And, yeah. And more, and more recently, um, Miranda Cookson. Um, so this is sort of, I, with, with these performers, I was very much interested in exploring sort of ephemeral sounds of the instrument and just trying to get into the sort of um, inner nature of string bowed strings as they are, you know, um, either play with like various levels of pressure, the bow, where you position the bow my colleague jason calloway is absolutely tremendous cellist and his right hand technique is just it's just so good so like i write so when i wrote the first piece for him i just i wrote very very specific bowing instructions for him you know and we spent a lot of time working very carefully you know with making sure he bowed it or experimented with how he bowed it and how what i wanted um in terms of the pressure and the positioning so there was a lot of this very careful examination of writing just for solo instruments and electronics. And and a lot of electronics are actually rather simple. Um, they're mostly in all these pieces. I mostly use delays for one thing. There's sort of spatial techniques I used in terms of diffusing the sound and surround sound spaces, as well as um, breaking up the sound spectrally so that there's various regions um, so that, you know, um, it's not always this way, but I'm just for doctor purposes, um, there's a high register, a medium high, a medium low, and a low register mm-hmm. of frequencies that I cut up, and then I break up into space so that each one of those is in, let's say, um, four corners of a triangle, four corners of a of a square. Mm-hmm. And the square rotates and moves and contracts and expands around the listener. You, yeah, we've we've talked about this before. Yeah, yeah kind of um, 
like, yeah, uh, take it. Well, yeah, you you said exactly, but we've. Yeah. I, I I remember you you kind of telling me about this before. Are you just in? You're you're a Max user, so are you just using yeah. like comb or not comb? Um, what is it? Cross. No, no, I'm using it, it's all it's all Facebook coder based. Okay, it works right. it works really well with strings because as long as you don't have many transients, you 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 can do it rather easily with strings, which is a straight um, brick wall filter, uh, Facebook coder brick wall filter. Okay, yeah, they, they work quite easily. It's, awesome. If you try if you try doing something like this with um, percussive instruments, it doesn't work. But if you were doing it with an instrument which doesn't have like clear transients, like you know, strings or woodwinds. It works really clearly. Uh-huh. It's not my idea. I got stole it from uh, John T. Harrison. <laughs> Scott Wilson. If, you know. if there's someone to steal something from, you yeah, know. I mean, like... I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 as Stravinsky said, you know, great artists steal. Um, so, yeah, but it's also, it's, I, I, it's, you know, I'm a pianist and, and one of the things I think that's, one, I think one of the best spatial imagings that exists in music is the perspective of the piano from a pianist's performer's perspective. When you play piano, you know, the low, the high and everything in between is just like, it's, it's the best perspective. You know, there's, Uh you, you hear things so clearly. So, I mean, anytime I record piano, I record piano so that piano sounds like it sounds to the pianist itself. You know, there's just, there's something so wonderful about hearing, you know, the registers so distinctly, you know, Uh And so, you know, that's kind of the model of what I'm thinking about is like with, with doing this technique is that, you know, you sort of, you break apart the um, registers of the strings so you can hear the inner components much more clearly because it, you know, dealing with auditory stream segregate, auditory scene, ugh, auditory stream segregation, you know, when you break apart the registers, you can hear them much more clearly. And the other thing that's really nice about this technique is um, it um, doesn't prioritize the sweet spot. So right. that, yeah, so that wherever you're sitting, you get a unique perspective of the sound itself. You know, you hear a, a unique inner perspective. And since I'm dealing with such ephemeral sounds, you know, the material will always sound, you know, you're always going to get a unique, particular ephemeral experience, you know, no matter where you're sitting, no matter how it's performed, moment to moment. So um, that's sort of an approach I've, I've developed over those, those, those four solo pieces. Um, so bringing that forwards towards the shrink quartet, the idea was to kind of take all of the stuff that I did from those pieces and see, kind of like combine it into a quartet, basically, uh-huh. like to see if I could, to try to do it as a quartet, which was, you know, it's a different, it's a different beast. Um, it's because it's a quartet. It's not one instrument, it's not two instruments. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, it was this piece was initially the, the first version of this piece was initially performed at the Taipei International Music Festival um, in 2015. I was one of the guest composers for this festival. Um, I was there on a Fulbright as well. Um, and my, my colleagues, the Amarnay String Quartet, who I wrote it for, were, were, were guest performers for that festival. And um, yeah, I mean, it was hard because I wrote that piece while traveling like crazy. It's uh-huh. like I wrote it in Houston. I wrote it in Denton. I wrote it in Miami. I wrote it in Kalashung. I wrote it in Taipei. I wrote, it in I wrote all these. I was like constantly moving. So it was really hard to write. Um, and, you know, and of course, because it's because it's a string quartet and, and you know, there four microphones live process. It's almost actually, yeah, this piece, that piece is entirely live electronics. Yeah. So, um, you know, 
I didn't even have a chance to work with the performers until the dress rehearsal an hour and a half before the performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was going on presumptions about what can work from previous, you know, pieces. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the premiere was kind of like, eh, I was, I was, I was a little dissatisfied with it. Um, but, you know, I've been spending the last few years working on revising it. It was originally, the, originally the revision was going to be premiered on April 2020. But, you know. <laughs> we, yes. Yeah, we went, I know. Yeah, we all, yeah, we all, yeah, <laughs> shit happened. <laughs> so, so um, I, you know, I, I stopped, I honestly, I just stopped revising it because I was like, enough of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had had pages and pages of sketches and I later did spend a significant amount of time revising the piece. Um, and so like, that's why this, you know, the, the composition dates are from 2015 to 2021, because um, I have over the course of six years, basically gone back to it and like said, okay, look at the score and say, maybe change this, change this. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of, um, I think, you know, one of the things if I'm going to summarize some of the revision process was the fact that, um, and I think this is something I've come to realize over the years is when you're writing pieces for ensembles and electronics, as opposed to solo instruments and electronics, um, I find personally, I find that, you know, you need to let the ensemble speak more by itself yeah. rather than, rather than, you know, when you're writing a piece for solo instruments, and electronics, when you're writing a piece for solo instrument electronics, you can actually have the electronics carry two thirds of the weight, you know, and it'll still be a really good piece. But when you're writing a piece for ensemble electronics, you probably should have two thirds of the ensemble carry the weight of the work, you know? So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, you know, I, I have some, I have a student right now who's, Mm -hmm. uh, doing, who wants to do a piece for like, uh, what is it? Is I can't remember if they're doing wind ensemble or orchestra, but they want to do electronics too. And I'm like, okay. Like minimal minimal yeah, yeah, and no, no, fixed exactly, exactly. you know like and well, yeah, uh, no, and and yeah. and i've i've totally had that experience too like i i have a string quartet with electronics and um you know there there are certain movements that are a little bit electronic more electronic heavy but a, a lot of the time it's just like yo they're a string quartet they can play yeah, their exactly, instruments exactly. Um, one, one thing I noticed though, was that, uh, with this piece in particular, you know, you, you have the quartet, you have the electronics, a lot of the electronics are like these long delays Yeah, and, um, you kind of turned the, uh, the string quartet into like a string orchestra at times. Yeah. And it was, it was really nice that, that dichotomy of like, no, this is the real thing. Wait where does the real where does the string quartet begin or where does the string quartet end and the electronics begin and that was a really nice blurring yeah that i I thought you achieved with this yeah that that's um i'm gonna i'm gonna if you don't mind i'm gonna say something i've said like (laughs) not a million times but many many times but like for me i have this whole sort of analogy with consideration of instruments and electronics instruments electronics are my favorite thing like Uh it's as a composer that's like that's like that's that's what i love the most yeah that's i mean i've i i will never 
forget how moved I was some of the first times I've heard pieces for instruments and live electronics. It's just, it's, it was just, I mean, it haunted me for days mm -hmm. and days and days or months and years, you know, I love it so much. Um, but part of me is part of the thing is like, I've spent a lot of time critically understanding what makes it work well and what makes it work bad because it works because so many pieces that combine instruments and electronics are so, so bad. <laughs> I mean, they're just off, right? I mean, the tea has been spilt. <laughs> I mean, you know, so I, I've spent a lot of time trying to criticize this and understand this. And, and yeah. my students have heard, a lot of my students, especially at the upper level, have heard me say this countless times, paraphrase this or say this sort of story. But um, I'm going to borrow from um, literary theory, which is the idea of the suspension of disbelief. So mm -hmm. bear with me for a while. This is a mixed metaphor. It takes some time to explain. Um, so two, there are two sort of suspensions of disbelief in terms of listening to electronics versus listening to a performer. When you listen to a performer, it's like, okay, here's this like person and they've like dedicated their life to doing small movements with their body or mouth. And they're doing them in front of a large audience and we all accept that and we call it music. It's like, mm -hmm. <laughs> ontologically, it's absurd, right? You know, it's like, you know, like, right? Like, what, what, what is this? You know what I mean? Like right. an alien comes from outer space. They have no idea what music is. They see us all observing this and then applauding afterwards. Like, what are these humans? What's wrong with them, right? It's a suspension of disbelief. You know, it's like, okay, we accept the fact that this weird, ontologically strange thing is music making, acoustic music making, right? Mm -hmm. The other one is... Electronics is like, you know, I got headphones in right now and you got headphones in right now. You know, if we don't have headphones in, we have speakers, you know, they don't, they're, we, we listen to these things, vibrations come out and we're like, it's me speaking to you right now. Mm -hmm. You know, we, there's a suspension of disbelief. I'm not speaking to you. There are vibrations which are being sent via, you know, these transmissions of electricity turning into digital data which is transferring over tcp to you and then being de-encrypted by tcp to you being reconverted from you know digital data back into analog data which you then understand as me speaking you know we, we it's a suspension of disbelief yeah but we like we accept the fact that we're talking back and forth because you know it's you know we've we're suspending our disbelief you know because whatever um so same thing with like you know music it's like you know with the luminaire brothers you know when when the first film was shown and the train coming, you know, everybody saw the train coming and they freaked out because they're like, ah, oh, the train's coming. No, it's right. just a reflect, it's just representation. We we're willing to accept the fact that when I put drop a needle on my record and I listen and it's the Beatles that, you know, it's the Beatles. It's not just a needle going through grooves. The problem is electronics and acoustic are two different forms of, disp of, of um, suspension of disbelief. So I'm going to use a mixed metaphor here. Um, the idea being that like watching somebody perform acoustic music is very similar to watching an actor in a play. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like, okay, again, ontologically absurd, you know, these people talking and pretending and acting through this real life sort of thing as if it's like, you know, real life, but like you go to play and you like accept it and you suspend your disbelief and you're like, Oh, this is human interaction. This is psychological. This is, you know, there's meaning there's, you know, there's depth, there's emotional things, you know, that's one mode of suspension disbelief. Yeah. The other mode of suspension disbelief being electronics is, I think, correlative to 
uh, movies mm-hmm. or yeah. television, right? You know, like you go, it's a flat screen, just like, you know, the, 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 the speakers are flat blank, you know, um, thing, which doesn't provide any sort of evidence that it's creating music, you know, but like, boom, it's Star Wars. We're in outer space, you mm-hmm. know. Darth Vader is real, you know, the force, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> we suspend our disbelief, you know, it's like, right? So, so the analogy being, if we combine instruments and electronics is like combining a play with a movie. You know, if there's an actor doing a play and there's a movie, have a movie, it's like, what the hell? <laughs> like, yeah, what am I supposed you can, to be, what am I yeah, supposed exactly. to pay attention to? Exactly, exactly. You know, what is the suspension of disbelief I'm supposed to be suspending? You know, it's, right. it's, it, there's a certain cognitive dissonance to try to suspend your disbelief to pay attention to play. There's a certain cognitive dissonance trying to suspend your disbelief to pay attention to the movie. It's too hard to do both at the same time. And I think this is why so much music for instruments and electronics fails, because people don't realize that when you're listening to a performer play and when you're listening to electronics, it's a two different modes of experience. They don't think about the rec- how to reconcile this. Now, on the other hand, use your imagination. Imagine you're watching the actor in the movie, and then all of a sudden, the movie suddenly becomes real. Mm-hmm. You know, and the people from the movie are suddenly there acting with the actors. You know, or the can't act, happen. or the actor like fades back into the yeah, actual exactly, movie. exactly, yeah. exactly. It can't happen. It can't happen. But you can imagine it. You know, it's like dream mm-hmm. logic, right? You know, it's like it's the kind of like it's the play of symbols. You know, it's like this weird sort of surreal thing that you know it doesn't exist but your brain can make sense of it you know mm-hmm. um you can do that with electronics and instruments you know you can you can find those connections where you can't tell what's real and what's not you know um when i when i perform a lot of my pieces with instruments electronics i can't tell what's played and what's electronic most of the time mm-hmm. i literally have to watch the for like for instance with this piece when it was being performed i literally had to watch the performer's bows because right. I couldn't tell what was real and was wasn't real, you know. Yeah. For me, that's for me. That's when if you're going to combine instruments with electronics, that's that's where the magic happens, you know. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, it's like if you really watch and pay attention, you can tell that you're being tricked. But you know, um, telling that you're being tricked, you know, still can be magical. You know, mm-hmm. it's like there's there's there was this great um, this American Life. Um, that I've often wanted to assign to my students to listen to. Where they're talking to Penn and Teller. Yeah. I think it's Penn, where, where Penn is like talking about like, you know, doing this magic trick where he explains the magic trick as he's doing the magic trick, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and, and like, it, but it's still magical because like, you know, I'm, I'm telling you what I'm doing, but you, and you can see it, but like your brain still can't quite figure it out. Right. You know? that, that sort of cognitive dissonance, that sort of like playing with, you know, um, perception or that sort of, liminal space of modes of perception a liminal space you know of how we deal with things i think you know it's really magical i think about like also think about the grand canyon i go go to the grand canyon all the time i've been there at least 20 times intellectually it makes sense (laughs) but you know perceptually it doesn't you know it's this constant cognitive dissonance i I love that sentence intellectually the grand canyon makes sense (laughs) <laughs> but perception, my brain's like, no, it doesn't. Right. You look out you know, there, you, you know, you look out there and it was like, nah, man, come on. <laughs> like, like, no, like, that's not real. <laughs> like, I'm, like there, there's this great like plaque in the Grand Canyon where you talk about like the first Western, you know, the first like conquistadores. I like, thought, yeah. oh, the Colorado River is two inches wide. <laughs> 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 the 
county is only like a hundred feet deep. Right. <laughs> you like, know, yeah. you know what you were, what you were saying there, where the I, I some some of the most like profound experiences I've had with like instrument and electronics are those pieces like like what I said, where you know there there is a melding of yeah. of the two of the two systems together really nicely. Like I remember, um, and it has stayed with me for fricking ever. Um, the very first time I heard synchronisms number, uh, number six by David. Oh yeah. yeah, The piano one. Yeah. 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 The, the opening, the opening gesture. And it was like, and yeah. And it's like, Oh my God, the electronics can do what the piano cannot do. And it takes it and it does. And, and then the the very first time I ever heard Eleni Lilios's Nostalgic Visions, mm-hmm. piano and, and live electronics, and I was like, oh, my God, this is the same thing. This is the same thing, but it's live now. You yeah. know, like there's there's this uh, this kind of like hyper instrument that's created from the two of them where neither is greater than the other. Neither takes focus from the other ever, but it's just this thing. You know, yeah. it's this impossible instrument. Um, and and I think about that a lot. And um, actually, the the most recent uh, thing I've completed, uh, finally, I wrote a piano and electronics piece. Probably it took me this long because I was so uh, I was. I had so much like anxiety knowing that the Davidovsky was out there, knowing that yeah, the yeah, Lilios yeah, exactly. was out there. You know, it's like it's kind of the Brahms thing of like, you know, well, I've got Beethoven, so how could I ever? And I'm not comparing myself to either one, but 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 you know what I mean? It's like there. Oh yeah, no, no. It took me it took me a good two years. Yeah, to my so, first piece for piano and electronics. <laughs> but it, but it was like finally I finally I was able to kind of get over it, but I also had. I I think that that idea of like the piano and the electronic sharing the same DNA, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and that even that gesture of the like I do something live and it gets picked up and uh, and then done something with like that first gesture in the Davidovsky that was like a big conceptual starting point for me, but it was like it, it's it's like uh, when um, I had I had a period of time where I was really into Ligeti, and I was like, "Oh, yeah. micro polyphony is so amazing!" But he never moves it. What if it moved? You know, exactly. and it's like so. I'd write like you know. That, that, that's why I prefer Zanakis these days. Well, right, yeah. <laughs> but but like you know, it's it's like you 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 love something about this you know this older composer or whatever, and it's like yeah, that's cool, but. What if it? What if they went further? What if? What mm-hmm. if I'm able to take it further than than maybe they thought or something like that? So, yeah, it's I I I tend towards those pieces where it's like you they the composer is creating that like that hyper instrument or a a true interaction where the electronics pick up what the instrument can't do. You can't make four people on a stage sound like twelve. Yeah, but with the electronics, you can. Yeah, exactly. You can't. You can't suspend a single sound that they made right indefinitely. You know, but you can do it with electronics. You know. Yeah. So. yeah. Yeah. Awesome.
Uh, so who are we going to hear on this recording? Uh, so this is the Amarnay String Quartet. These are my colleagues at Florida International University. Um, the first violin is Misha Wittensen. The second violin is Avi Nagin. Um, the viola is Michael Klotz. And then the cello is uh, Jason Calloway. And then I'm running the electronics. All right, let's listen to it. So this is Time and After.
Okay. Uh, last question. Uh, how did you find music as the thing that you wanted to pursue for your life? <laughs> oh, saving the easy ones for last. Right? Uh, God, think think about it this way. What if I had asked that question first? <laughs> this would be a very different conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, yeah, it's weird. I can come up with some multiple angles. Um, we you know when I, when I started my undergrad, I was actually a triple major, which <laughs> in, in these days of like metrics and stuff is inconceivable. Yeah. Um, I was molecular cellular biology cause I needed a money job. Um, I was a piano. <laughs> Sorry. <performance> major. <laughs> How'd that work out for you? <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> it did not. <laughs> um, um, I was piano performance cause I had, I had been studying piano for many years. And then I discovered like when I was applying or on orientation, I discovered there was a composition degree. I was like, well, hell yeah. <laughs> I've been composing for like, because my piano teacher, oh God, I, I gave so much credit to her. You know, she, my first or second week of piano lessons back when I was like in fourth grade, gave me a um, composition assignment. And yeah. so every year we had to do compositions and I would do them when I was in, when they weren't assignments too. So when I discovered you could actually study composition, I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. doing that. I'd also won like some prize for like the Southwest America. I was like second or third for like best piece in the Southwest America when I was a senior. Um, so yeah, I mean like it was like two or three years. I was two years, my third beginning, my third year as an undergrad. Um, I, um, I went to my senior level molecular and cellular biology course, you know, and, um, it was in the afternoon. It was the class. I was like, oh, this is why I'm doing this major. This is why I'm so into being a, wanting to be a scientist. And I kid you not, I drank two or three beers before I went to the class, which I never have ever done before. And I went to class. And I watched. I, I, I saw them present the syllabus. And I was like, okay. And I left class. And I was like, I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. I dropped the major that day. And I never looked back. I, I added electronic music <laughs> the next day. Um, so, yeah, I mean. Music's, it's, I mean, I do music because I'm not entirely sure why I do music. I still can't tell you why I do music. Um, Honestly, it, like that's, that's an okay answer because yeah, I, know, I, I mean, know. who, it's, it's, who knows, you know, why, yeah, why we are compelled to, to do this. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, I find, I find a lot of meaning in like things which don't give me meaning. Yeah. And so sound for me is like, sound doesn't tell me anything. Sound doesn't mean anything to me. My father was an English professor. Maybe this is why I'm like this. I'm a kind of a punk at heart. You know, I'm probably rebelling against my parents on, you know, choosing the field, which makes no sense. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, in, in music, you can explore certain, you know, liminal spaces or certain transitional materials or certain just regions where things are unknown in terms of where they're going. Um, like Andrei Tarkovsky has a, a, a quote, which I'm, I'm going to paraphrase because I, I don't remember exactly where he talks about music. And one of the things I think explains some of my fondness in music, which is that the idea is that, you know, he's comparing film to music and he says, you know, like in film, you know, just like music, time is central. However, you know, in music, the very life force of music 
is gone in the instant that it's presented. You know, it's music is always fading into nothingness. So it's kind of like, there's a certain, for me with music, there's a certain like spiritual nature to it Mm -hmm. where it's like, it's ephemeral. It's always, you can only grasp it after it's passed, you know? And that seems very um, analogous to how we live life, you know, and, and how we find meaning in life. So for me, you know, when I, as being a musician and creator of music, that's some of the ways I feel like I can sort of most closely connect or try to find meaning with what I do or how we exist from moment to moment is just grasping with that, which is constantly, you know, evading our, our understanding or evading our, our reach and grasp. Um, I mean, I, I like to write music, which is constant, which is transitioning slowly, constantly, you know, maybe with occasional ruptures as, you know, the, the cognitive apparatus changes scene because um, the cognitive apparatus changes scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, just, it's kind of a way of making sense of life, you know, in the sense of the world, yeah. you know, and it's, it's been, you know, for lack of a better description, it's, it's been, I find the most efficacious means to, to kind of make sense of the world. So that's probably why I've gravitated towards music as an, as, as an individual and human or whatever. Yeah. Well, before we go, can you tell people uh, where they can find more of your music, where they can connect yeah, yeah. with you online, stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I have a SoundCloud, which I think is Jacob David Sudol. Or just search Jacob Sudol SoundCloud. Um, there's a Jacob Sudol Bandcamp. So you can search Jacob Sudol Bandcamp. And then um, my wife, Jen Hui Jen, my better 90%. She's way better than me um, in many, many ways. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, we, she and I have a duo where she plays piano, I play electronics and engineer recordings. Uh, we have a duo called the Misty Shore Duo. You can find many of our live streamed um, concerts online, um, as well as a Misty Shore Duo Bandcamp, where we have, I believe, seven or eight albums of material that we've released in the last year and a half. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this, Jacob. Oh, of course, Rob. It's been definitely a pleasure. Appreciate you asking me. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.